welcome on in. Enzwell Boxing, Ireland's boxing podcast. I'm Al Rich. Click on the link in the attached show notes. You'll find all our previous episodes. If you want to get in touch, suggestions, ideas, you'll find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or you can email us at endswellpod at pearlhandmail.com. Welcome on in indeed. As I read my note to self above the mic, slow down, talk into the mic. So we begin. First of all, the only single mention of the whole climate and crisis scenario we find ourselves in at the moment will be here now, these few words. Uh, Upon reflection and having looked back at last week's episode and previous episodes and interviews and I find I've been guilty myself of a negative narrative. Negative narrative, how about that for a wordsmith? Um... Yeah, I I just find that it's become a little bit too much of a narrative for me. I've allowed it to creep into my psyche. I've allowed it to creep into my everything. And um, as quickly as it's crept in, it's out, gone, finished. No more. This is a COVID-free zone, this podcast. So this is your podcast that you listen to now where you will not hear a mention of lockdown. You will not hear a mention of COVID. You will not hear a mention of pandemic, pandemic, mandemic, nothing. Done. It's gone we are free of it here for the duration of this podcast and every other episode to come. It ain't happening. And we're going to start, before we look too far ahead, want to pay a little bit of respect. It's sort of synchronicity and fitting that D. Walsh, our guest today, would have mentioned in his interview last week that life is a fight. Testament to that. I want to remember a very, very special, inspirational just an absolute warrior champion of the past. He's sadly no longer with us as I record this episode here and I look up at him here right up over my forehead. I'm talking, of course, of the most dazzling star in the sky, the most dazzling boxer we've had in the Irish setup in in um, many will say ever, but certainly many a long, long time. Darren Sutherland is 11 years gone today, Monday, and uh, he left behind an indelible, an indelible hole in an Irish boxing scene that he had graced and lit up for many years and in the pro game which waited and anticipated his arrival and this is a little clip of Darren's interview just before he made his pro debut in Dublin back in 2008 I'm a hard puncher I think I'm an exciting fire I, I love what I do you know and, and, and when I get into fire I, I do like to entertain the crowd as well so you know they're going to get fast hard punching exciting it's going to be an exciting fight and it, it all depends on how, how good my opponent is, if he brings it to me. Uh, most amateurs turn professional, their first fight, in the first couple of fights, they tend to start out on four rounders. But I, I like to pride myself on my preparation and my conditioning, and I feel that you know I'm ready to go straight into six rounds once I put the training in, the, in and get used to the professional setup. Um, but I feel that the way I box, I work well behind a good jab, and, and I tend to break my opponent down as the fight goes on. And I think six rounds will suit me better because you don't feel rushed. I'm punching very, very hard, and I think that if I do connect flush on the chin at some stage in the fight, the guy is going to go. And if it, the fight comes, you know, if the, if the time comes to finish, I will get in there and finish the job. If I have to win on points, I've prepared and trained to do the full six rounds. Darren got a round four TKO win that night. He went on and had four wins as a pro, as we all know, and uh, sadly then he he left us. And um, it's hard to believe at times, really, he's 11 years gone. 
and and when you look back at everything that's been and everything that's that's happened and all his teammates and when you look at all the, the different paths they've all gone on and they've all had varying degrees of success and they've all had varying degrees of of um of bad luck as well and um and and of of I suppose dark days and his was was probably the darkest. There's not much that hasn't been written, said, and recorded about Darren, and uh, I'm, there's nothing more that that I can add to it that's going to bring any any light to it. It's a it was a sad, tragic event, but I choose to remember the absolute brilliance of him, the brilliance, the bright, uh, illuminating, um, inspiring, and and an infectious smile and persona and personality and voice, and hearing it there again just reminded me of it. So in an upbeat. Covid-free, lockdown-free, Darren Sutherland tribute episode. Let's keep it going and start it off as we look at what's coming up. We'll jump in and have a look at some of the fights that were on over the weekend, featuring, of course, past guest Declan Spellman, Anthony Yard, and uh, future guest Mark Heffron and Denzel Bentley. Two great fights over the weekend, two of, of different types. We'll have a little look at the boxing news and the news in general around the world and see what's coming up, see what fights are coming, some big fight announcements in the pipeline over the last few days, and some to come over the next couple as well. The feature, a fascinating and brilliant insight from a man who has found an inner peace, some would say, a calling, others would say. His fighters would just call him coach. D. Walsh is a former pro, He's twelve. he was 12-0, he's BUI light middleweight champion. And he pulls back the curtain and gives fans a glimpse at what goes into the behind the scenes from designing a fight plan, drilling that fight plan, learning the time that goes into all of that and those last moments of a fighter before he makes the walk to the ring and how every single fighter is different. I told Potty just right before the fight, if you're able to land that jab there, body, then I'm definitely going to get an early knockout. We can't call him a boxing secret anymore. We can't say he's one for the future. What we can say 100% certainty is that he's now an established coach whose fighters are making serious indents on the world boxing scene. And it's a real joy and welcome. D. Walsh. The most important part of it all is breaking things down simply. I've probably said that about 10 times already. And all of that will be wrapped up snugly in all the news, the views, the interviews of everything that's gone on around the world in, in boxing. The way I'm going to break it up today's episode... I'm going to have a little bit of content, going to have the first part of the interview with Dee and then going to have a little bit more and then we'll round out the episode with the second part of the interview with Dee. I'll tell you all about it as I'm teeing it up but where else to start or where better to start should I say than the news that broke during the week, exciting news for anybody that really loves boxing at its purest, boxing at its technical best. We've got Teofimo Lopez versus Vasily Lomachenko. What else could you ask for? Oh, that is set to be the biggest, biggest fight of the year. If it delivers half of what is expected of it, it's going to be sensational. It's a fascinating contest on almost every level. Pr- pretty much every level. Will Loma ever get the credit that he fully deserves? Will he get the universal adulation from the boxing world, from the casuals and the hardcore? Who knows? Will the same element of detractors, haters just continue? Um, of course Lopez has the power <laughs> we know he has the confidence but what else what else what can Teofimo Lopez find or do that 14 previous opponents couldn't Gary Russell Jr 24-0 Roman Martinez Nicholas Walters 26-0 Guillermo Rigondo 12-0 Jorge Linares Jose Pedraza 
25 and 1. And Loma had one arm. One arm. Injured earlier in the fight. Continued on and finished it inside the distance. Anthony Crawler. Luke Campbell. Can Teofimo Lopez find something that those others didn't? It remains to be seen. Lopez has an unerring, an unerring sense of confidence. He exudes belief, confidence, borderline cockiness. He's flamboyant, he's a showman. We know all of that. He's going to entertain, he's going to talk big, he's going to insult, upset. He is going to do whatever he wants to do in the run-up to this fight. Be prepared. What are we going to get from Loma? We've heard from Stevie McKenna, who sparred with him in preparation for, uh, I think it was, for the L- L- Linares fight. They needed somebody to fight in a particular style. Stevie McKenna was brought in. Think about that one. What does that say about his pedigree, His how his standing is seen in the boxing world by the very, very best there is right now? That is beyond doubt. There's nobody regardless of whether you like Lomachenko or whether you're not. And, and, and to be honest with you, I, I don't know what there is not to like about him. I don't see what there is to doubt about him. You look at his record, there's nobody other than Dillian White who has fought a list of who's who like that. We know from what Stevie's told us, Loma is all business. There's no frills, there's no fanboys. There is no music, no entourage, no bullshit. He turns up the spar... Him and his coach, he's a throwback fighting attitude who is reinventing technique. He's reinventing style. He's an elite, generational, genuine, genuine TBE candidate. Man, do I hate that reference. But it seems appropriate. It seems appropriate, not because he is a genuine the best ever, but because it may just annoy a certain element of haters who refuse to see what's in front of them. It's a fascinating fight. The fight poster is even more fascinating. Head to head, hand uh, wraps, of course, and everything. You got to see it. It's hard. It's too. It's too good for me to try and explain it. It's actually so good. I'm going to get a print of it and I'm going to get it up on the on the wall here in the studio. Loma likes to busy himself in the build up to these fights, so I'm going to endeavour. I'm going out on a limb. I'm going to endeavour to see is it possible maybe to get uh, a little interview with him at some point in time. It's a long shot, but listen, we've had longer shots come in here over the last few weeks and months. And with the help of everybody out there who has just been incredible again over the last few episodes. Just just incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Too many to name. And um, just thank you. It just means the world. It's been incredible. So it's a new, upbeat, up and at attitude from here on in. Valencia at the weekend. Oroks lads. What a show. Vic. Ryan. Dylan. Incredible. Stephen. What a show. What a performance. We had Connor Slater, of course, over there, and thanks, Connor, for your your Connor was in touch as well to to thank me for the effort. There's no need to thank me. This is what I'm love doing, and it was a privilege to have the three lads in. Three brilliant performances. Ryan was slick. He's disciplined, dominated, and controlled from start to finish. Very simple, straightforward. He just did what he went to do. Victor, vicious, slick, hard hitting, and he dominated. At times, he was trying to throw down and almost willing his man, but he was a tough warrior. Was his opponent and wasn't wasn't he knew better than to get drawn in, and that Dylan, fast flowing and that and that fluidity was there at times that that everyone has come to know and love and it's what's got him to where he is, and then you see at times as well where he was almost throwing down as well. He was like he had the look of a fella. If I'm being honest, I said it to him. He had the look of a fella who just wanted to go to war. He wanted to suck him in and get him punish somebody, 
but um, he was too wise for that as well. Almost had him at the very end, almost, but wasn't to be. The opponent knew how to go, where to go and when, but it didn't affect or influence the result. It was three wins out of three and a brilliant night's work. What's next for the lads? Poland, October 9th, Carpe Diem show. We'll have Tiernan Bradley's debut. We'll have Tony Bra- Tony Brown's debut. And we'll probably have Ryan on the card as well. That's what we know of right now. I think Vladimir Beluski is on it. And before that show, we will also have all of those lads back on here. We'll also have Connor Slater, the promoter, and the fellow who's working tirelessly in the background with Stephen to get these lads busy and get them shows when, let's face it, very few other Irish fighters are. So, respect to you lads. Well done. Superb weekend's work. And I'll tell you this much, Connor. There could be Sky Sports or somebody could be looking for your services over the next couple of uh, days and years because I'll tell you one thing, you weren't too bad with that all camera on the Instagram Live on, on Friday night. From there then, it was the BT Studios on Saturday night. Frank Warren promotion, Mark Heffron against Denzel Bentley in a in a bruising, bruising super middleweight contest. Tough, hard-hitting, crushing shots. Really, like you could hear, the, and this is the beauty of the, of the fanless arenas, um, you can hear everything. You can hear the sounds. You can hear. The, I think the cornermen and the teams have mastered the art of of talking low enough just to avoid the a reach of those mics. Um, I underestimated Bentley. I have to say I didn't watch anything of him, and and I it wouldn't be unusual. Sometimes well, the, it happens the odd time. I don't look too closely at uh, opponents. Uh, he troubled Mark at times. He switched to Southpaw and knocked him down in the second, which really surprised me. Really did, because it kind of came from nowhere. Was a was a solid, really committed shot that I would say Mark probably was off balance, wasn't expecting, but there you go. That's when it happens. A, it was deemed a draw at the end. It comes down again to what you want from a fighter, to what do you expect to see from a winner. Mark was offensive, he was aggressive, he was pressing, he was come forward all the time. Bentley was slick. At his very best, he was brilliant. He was slick, he moved, he was tricky, sli- countering, rolling, but kept getting backed into the corners. And when he got backed into the corners, the absolute carnage that was unleashed on him from, from Heffron was, was frightening at times. You could hear it. And um, you could hear the aggression from Mark, of course, and then you could hear the impacts and the, the effects of it on Denzel. It was, a, it was a really, really enjoyable contest. If I had to call it, I didn't score it, but if I had to call it... <laughs> And I'm, look, I'm going to be biased because Mark. Yeah, I would I would have leaned towards Heffron. I would definitely would have leaned because he definitely was pressing it. But when I look back at it afterwards, Bentley, without a doubt, was smooth, slick, and he was um, tricky. So they do it all again, and I understand from Kevin Marie and from from the messages they've had since uh, that the rematch is already agreed, ready to go, and it will be a really, really entertaining. If you haven't seen the first one, watch it. And get ready for the second. You percent I won that fight then. The round, the round he won was around that. He, he caught me. So you want to give me out working for every round? Do you know what I mean? I outworked every round. He caught me with the odd jab. That was it. Yeah, but work rate on me first. I landed the cleaner shots. I thought I landed the cleaner shots. I moved when I needed to. Well, but maybe certain, maybe being in the wake when I had to do with it. But it is what it is. Definitely very much. Hundred percent. My first time doing 10 rounds, the next time I'm experienced doing the rounds now, it'll be a different fight. A really good co-main event for the main event, of course, which was Anthony Yard making a long-awaited return to the ring, about 12 months since the Kovala fight against our pal and one of the more regular guests we've had return to the show here on occasion. So, the, the comments afterwards and since sort of, I won't say, it kind of boiled me frog, I won't say it boiled me frog, but... My old frog was gone from being in comfortable, cool water to 
it's just a little bit too tepid now. Can we say tepid without being too hot? Um, I went back and I looked at the fight again afterwards, and I'd be naive to say Deck was winning the fight. He wasn't winning the fight. I'd be naive to say that he was pressing the fight. He wasn't pressing the fight. But I did go back and I looked at it, and I made some notes as we went through the rounds, okay? And this is just, just my own thoughts on it. I'm not... This is what I thought. Round one, Deck darted really well. He double jab was flicked out a lot, landing it a lot. Yard was trying the fast right hand that he always does. That's his. That's his, one of his signature moves. And was he spent a lot of time, if not all of that first round, kind of looking, moving, having a look from another angle, giving different looks, trying to read Deck, trying to time him, trying to get his his movements. Deck was far more offensive. He was aggressive. He was in the center of the ring and he was committed to the job. So as he was landing the job, he wasn't just flicking it out, which you find Anthony was doing early on in the fight. Just a range find. The head movement was good from Deck. It was moving constantly. He wasn't all, but he, he was very hard to hit and he started, as I said, at a really good tempo. Yard tried a, a few big right hands, but he missed with them, whiffed them. Really didn't find the range well at all in the first round. And I had Deck winning that first round, okay? So remember that. First round to, to Spellman. Put it in context when you look at uh, some of the comments afterwards from people who, I guess, know best. or little more measured from, from AY in the second round. Uh, changing levels, switching up to down, switching upstairs, downstairs, coming forward an awful lot more. And without pressing. It wasn't what, He was coming forward, but he wasn't pressing him. He wasn't putting the pressure on. He, was, he had the gap judged a little bit better. He was fainting again with that right hand and Deck was constantly aware of it. Knew well. And he was changing, working the gap. As I said, still weary all the time of Spellman's power. It was towards the end of the second round before he did let any combination go, Anthony. And he, he found a couple, with a couple landed on the gloves as well. Deck was definitely finding a home for his double job again in that round. His head movement was a little bit less. He had slowed up with the head movement. Noticeably, Yard wasn't twitching as much for every feint that Deck was throwing. So he was working behind his jab a lot more as well. When he landed the jab, it was a more hurting jab than it was in the second, first round. But here's the thing. Now, and I, and I judge these, I try to judge these rounds objectively when I have a dog in the race, as they say. So I would have said, being really objective, I would have made that round a draw. And if I was really being favourable or biased, I would make the round to deck. I would be hard-pressed to give that round Anthony Yard. But from the jump, round three, Yard is now pressing, pushing. He's uh, throwing. He's He is now putting the pressure on deck. He's keeping the left hand low. He's trying to walk deck onto that signature right, and it works a couple of times. He uses the low left as a lure, as a bait almost. It, it can be it can be detrimental, and we've seen it in a lot of his fights. His his distance is really now it's starting to click. Now you've seen he's got the gap closed at will. He's got the distance. He's got the timing. He's got the speed. And Yard was much better in round three than any other two. Clear win for Anthony Yard in this round. But what I'm saying is that. It's not a case of Deck lying under ropes, taking all sorts of punishment. It wasn't happening. It wasn't at all happening. He was he was finding moments early, but particularly at the back end of every round, Anthony Yard was turning it up, turning it on, and turning it hard. You could hear the thudding, eye-catching shots, and the, and the obvious work was being done. You're talking 2-1 to Declan Spellman, going into the fourth. Yard has, again, increased the tempo, so you're seeing a steady increase. Round 1-4, to four, the tempo is going up, the speed is going up. It's like a, a car going through the gears. He's going across the gap with speed, precision, power. He's got it now. He's got the gap. He's got the timing. He's got deck. I won't say he's got him worked out, but he knows where he's going. He knows what he's doing. And he's he's starting to put together his own combinations. Declan is still there. He's finding his own shots less frequently. An awful lot less frequently. At this point in the fight, I was starting to think, this is all my worst fears are starting to come. But 
this is one tough chap. It's going to take something big to stop him. Round four was a really tough round for, for, for any Declan Spellman fans. And you're starting to see he's going to need to do something here. And he does enough. He wins the round, does AY. And that makes it to me, two all going into the fifth with the forward momentum um, for AY. Again, the tempo has gone yet another level. So it's steadily up and up and up. It's a little bit of a slugfest breaks out at the beginning, the middle, the beginning, say the middle third of this fight. Noticeably though, noticeably, AY now is angling those shots all the time around the glove, either underneath the elbow or around the glove and landing on the, uh, I suppose, the jaw or the neck of, of Spellman. Um, he's varying the shots, body, head, head, body, doubles, singles. It's it's punishing and you can hear them. It's clean, it's eye-catching, it's thudding and it's all coming from AY. Again, I don't want to say that this is a, this is turning into a 50-50 fight. It's not. Right now you're seeing Anthony Yard in the ascendancy and my fears are that there's going to be a big a big KO finish or something coming. But it's not a case of him lying on the ropes as a punch bag. It's not happening. Richie Woodall has a comment, something along those lines, that he's, he's, his work rate is, is good. It's not like his work rate is going down. You're looking at the favourite of the fight starting to turn the screw. What way does he respond? Well, he responds the way Dex Spellman always responds. Tough, hard, absorbing pressure, but coming forward as well, delivering his own telling shots. Now, with 30 seconds to go in five, uh, Yard's gum shield comes out. Again, the gum shield doesn't just come out on its own. It was a finish, a big, big, strong finish to the end of the round for Yard. There was some serious power shots landed and Deck was going back and you're looking at him on the stool here. As he goes back, Carl is telling him, double the jab, keep the head moving. You're starting to see the effects of it now. He's looking, he's looking battle-worn. Noticeably, Yard watches him walk the whole way back to his corner. They head into that, what transpired to be the last round, the tempo again had gone up. It's all AY finding hard, hard, crushing shots under the elbow of the body of Deck. It's nearly all to the body now at this stage. They're landing and they're hurting. You can see Deck trying to respond to them and reply to them, trying to gut it out as he does. He's on the back foot here now. The combinations are coming to the head and the body and Yard is stalking him. He's sensing it. He's he's feeling it. He's smelling it. Now Declan is trying. He's doing his A-level best at this stage to land his own and he is landing a couple but nowhere near enough. Just not enough at this stage to back Yard up. He needs to land something. He doesn't. The sequence that sees him take a knee or, or go down or whatever the case may be. He took seven shots. Hard, hard shots all in the same spot. You can hear them. As he said afterwards, he took the knee to try and clear his head. He's back up before seven and the ref waved it off. Now as a pal and as a friend, I'm conflicted because I know what the fight means to him. I know how much fight is in him. I know how tough he is. He's probably too tough. But that round in particular was the, the hardest I've watched for him in the fight. The sixth round was one-way traffic. My man was disappointed. His heart was broken. There was a, there was a bit of an outrage. I would say the outrage was more with the punditry afterwards from the likes of Hay and what he was saying. And then that was backed up a little bit, I suppose, by people who were repeating him. But all in all, my man acquitted himself more than, more than, well, more than most people expected. I'd like to see him now maybe take a break, step it back a little bit, get a couple of wins back under his belt, build the confidence up again and, and uh, go again because the man has a heart the size of a lion. And when we talk about lions in the camp, we can't complain. Anthony Yard showed what Anthony Yard is about and it's going to take something something incredible to stop him because when he's when he's in full flow like that he's he is a he's a sight to behold so big shout out Tundi he's been a source of much uh, confidence and inspiration for me and his messages we we've chatted back and forth um have been inspiring so well done to the lads well done to deck take a rail and break my man and uh, go and rest that body a podcast i want to recommend that i've discovered this week probably late as usual 
I've kind of stopped listening to podcasts as much as I used to, if I'm being honest, and I'll, I'll come to that in a second. But the Tommy Tiernan and the Hector podcast is absolutely brilliant. Brilliant. There's only two episodes so far. Just incredible. As, as Listen, it, it couldn't be anything else really, could it? You get a chance, look them up. I used to devour podcasts of all sorts, particularly boxing. And then a lot of comedy and a lot of the likes of Joe Rogan and Joey Diaz. And a uh, big shout out to Uncle Joey as well, of course, who has packed up the church of what's happening now. He's on a new adventure. But for a couple of different reasons, I find since I started this that I've stopped listening to as many. Now, I put that down to a couple of things. One, because I'm conscious of not copying not relaying the same content. Any content I have here comes from my pencil. The small hours of every night of the week, morning. Yeah, topics that I think are relevant. My questions for interviews are always trying to be a little bit left the field without being too far left the field, if that makes sense. Questions that people would want to know. On. Questions that fans, me as a fan, want to know when a fella's getting ready to go on, or in the camp or, or, or if something happens somewhere along the line. So for that reason, I stopped listening to a lot as well. And the other reason, I guess I just don't have as much, nearly as much time to myself to listen to as much because when I'm not creating, I'm writing, when I'm not writing, I'm recording or editing. So if you're going to be serious about it, which it has been very much so. Now in terms of guests, I have a guest list that I have here right now that I'm looking at. And it's at least the length of my arm, probably your arm. (laughs) Not quite Dan Donnelly's arm, but it's, yeah... And there's a list, a realistic list, a working list, I would call it. And there is a a hopeful list as well. And, and they're intertwined. They're realistic. And let's just say there's more gone off that hopeful list than I had ever expected at this point. I've said this before. And that's not to say I don't have a hardcore list of about four or five that I still listen to all the time. Um, my little golden rule is, I guess, with a day or two before I do record, I just don't listen to anything. But... Here's my point. When I hear a guest, boxer, trainer, fighter, he or she, whoever they may be, there's a lot of things that can catch my imagination, catch my attention. And with today's guest, Dee Walsh, what struck me about him was, if this makes sense, it was what he wasn't saying. And what do I mean by that? Well, you'll hear it by him here in a few minutes. The first part, the first half of this interview, in between each question, as I as I deliver the question, you'll hear Dee, he'll pause takes a breath and he'll listen and he'll almost absorb it and then he answers and as he's answering you're almost hearing the wheels turn now I hope I'm not being disingenuous D and uh, wherever you are when you're listening to this I hope you I hope I hope I'm close I think I'm close you can text me and let me know <laughs> whether I'm a mile out or whether I'm close or whether it's somewhere in there that was the impression I got when I heard him first so when I listened to the first 10 minutes of Stephen's interview with Boxing Tickets Northern Ireland shout out to Stephen by the way you're going to hear a little bit from him on here soon we're going to do a review of the last few fight cards I digress when I heard him talking to Stephen I thought "Mm, yep deadly deadly really want to talk to that fella so I reached out contact was made agreement was made and I researched and I have to say I made two pages of notes going into interviews and I never ever ever know what to expect from an interview I don't expect I go in with an open mind sometimes I go in with a bad mood or headache or pain in my arse or whatever the guess may be and every time I press record it's as if I've said this before it's as if there's this something comes down something comes over I don't know 
It's just like, I don't know, I don't know. I went into this interview with two pages of questions for the man. I write in pencil, so I've got pens, I've got side notes, I've got squiggles, I've got dashes, lines, circles, all sorts. And I finished when we spoke for 90 minutes. I think today's interview you're going to get about an hour, maybe 15 minutes out of it. I had three pages of extra notes when I made when I finished speaking to him when I told him that at the interview. It was a brilliant insight, an absolutely brilliant insight from one of the most progressive, modern, dynamic coaches on the scene right now. The way he approaches it, meticulous about it. The way it just completely consumes him. And I don't expect any less from any trainers, but I think it was more technically orientated interview than I've had and than I've done. And it was a really, really enjoyable one. And Dave, when you're listening, I hope I hope it does some justice and I hope I, I get it across in the right mood and in the, deliver it in the right frame. So, without any more delay, have a listen to Belfast, former BUI light middleweight champion and current coach and trainer to fighters like Owen O'Neill, and Rook Dalton, Lewis Crocker and, of course, our guest from a couple of weeks ago, Paddy McCrory. Here's Dee Walsh. This was meant to be the year that it's going to be flat, but as I say, same time, I'm happy enough for the way things have went. Do you know what I mean? A win is a win is a win. Everybody gets out healthy, all those things taken into account. But I think the, man- mm-hmm. the manner and the display of the victory, the two lads as well, like and the way they carried themselves before it and afterwards and all of that, it's, it's just, it, it, what an advertisement. I agree. 100%. Um, that's one thing that... Uh, I always notice that um, English um, fighters have, even though they may not have a great amateur background, but they're very, very tough and very strong, do you know what I mean? But we were able to match them for strength and um, fitness and also um, skill, the skill bazaar. That was the difference at the end of the day. It was the skill, hitting, not getting hit. Um, so it was really good to see us. Like, it gives us like, serious confidence in um, what we're doing is right also, do you know what I mean? And we're going to continue and just continue to build on it as well. In terms of, I suppose, coaching and the landscape of who's who and while the age profilers, you've now forced yourself in there, your name is in there. It's safe to say mm-hmm. you're one of the, the up-and-coming faces, hard-earned, it's been well-earned. You come across when you're on screen as, as being cool, composed. Well, see, to be honest with you, um, I have got one of them faces where I don't look like I'm uh, phased by much. And there isn't much that does actually phase me at all, to be honest with you. But um, in terms of my life in general... The one thing I do have in order is my boxing. And um, as I say, um, even when I was like, starting off coaching a couple of years ago, I knew what I was doing, but I just needed to build on it. And kind of over a period of time, I've been able to erase the things that I think are not as relevant as others. And as I say, now everything's starting to pan out. And um, I'm getting more and more confidence in myself. So I probably inside, I might, I mightn't be as cool as I look. Yeah. But... I think it's in time, I think it will be um, more relaxed, if you know what I mean. I suppose, isn't that the great trick of the boxer, isn't it? It's, it's to portray the calm, cool, and, and and for you then, it stems from you, because if you're calm and cool and relaxed, well then, with some pod and the lads are all going to come across, they're going to, but if you're losing yeah. shit in the corner and you're flapping a little bit, well then, it's going to it's gonna transfer, isn't it? Uh, 100%. Um, people, um, I'm not a, bit, a big believer in the negative and positive energy stuff. I do believe in it a bit, but when it comes to the actual boxing part, if I did look like I was panicking at times, it's definitely going to um, infect the fader in the corner, especially, and before the fade itself. And um, there's actually, one of the faders actually said to me yesterday, what did you tell Potty before the fade? You must have got him really fired up. And I went, 
to be honest with you, I just doing what we're doing right now. Like I just took them on the pods, warmed them up, just realized or just uh, reassured them that what we were doing. And to be honest with you, the game plan that we had was the, the game plan that we actually had from two months ago, and we just really and truly mastered it before he walked in the ring. And before the fight itself, I just um, I just reminded him of what he had to do, and he went out and did it to absolutely perfection. So, um, as I say, it was like a calm but explosive display from Potty, and I don't try to really get in fighters' faces and motivate them. I think there's definitely a place for it, and there maybe have to come a time where I might have to do it in the future. But when you know the fighter itself, um, you know that um, what way you can kind of treat them. And, and I'm, I'm even learning that more and more, even though I've known Potty my whole life. Um, and even with Lewis, Lewis is a different type of character than Potty. Um, but I definitely think um, that whatever the type of person you are, I definitely um, affects your fighter. Definitely. I had the privilege of speaking with Pod. I did about three weeks before. He's such a nice fella. I knew that knew that from the exterior, anyways. But he's absolutely driven, demented inside, internally by what he feels as his um, shortcomings as an amateur. From the conversation I had with him, and, and such an honest Jesus, he was so brutally honest that that's what's driving him. So I say that he's able to draw on that when he's getting himself through the, through the motions of warming up and everything else. It, there's not much anybody really needs to say to him, is there? One thing about Potty, um, that the people. Although we might probably not have may not have a, a national title league bit in the, the final one year um, of the Irish Intermediates, which is now called the Seniors. Um, and Potty was always really talented. Like, you know what I mean? Potty was actually didn't start boxing; he was about fourteen. Um, but he, um, but Potty was always really talented. But one thing I will say about Potty, he was never really dedicated. And I think if he had been dedicated, um, he would have done a lot more in the amateur game. Um, and it's something that we always knew in the boxing club because me and Potty boxed together from from the DNR that he started boxing, and um, as I say, that that is what drives him. And if anything, that would drive me also is to prove everybody wrong, especially people who, especially in this country, that um, if you're not like an Irish elite champion or you're not like a five six team national champion, people don't really take you that serious, and it, it shouldn't be the way. But I know that with Potty's talent and skill that he is as good as any of them people who claim to have like so many elite titles and so many national titles and stuff. So I'm glad it drives him and, and it's something that, that I'll actually keep reminding him of too. And in this day and age and in this era that we're living in this, this mad social media mad world, you couldn't ask as a boxer for a better highlight reel clip. It's less than, his 30 seconds are power, bang, and that's the type of thing that gets shared on social media. Not that he lives for that or not that he needs it, but it doesn't do him any harm when it comes to negotiating and lining up his next fights. Yeah, but big time. Just to give a little bit of an insight, you had a very successful amateur career and pro career of your own. You finished up, of course, as the... The, the BUI Super Welterweight Champion at 12-0. All the cliche questions, they're overcooked, they're overdone. What, what would be the biggest differences for you when you when you stepped into the coaching world, when you to the other side of the pads, the, the ones that would concern you the most? I think because that I did do um, quite well and I had, I've had a bit of experience in, in the ring and whatnot. I think I had over, it was about 80 to 100 fights amateur and then I would have had obviously 12 pro fights. But the thing was that... Um, that was hard for me was um although like see see what people don't realize about me as well is I when I was about nineteen I had nine fits and I lost seven out of nine fits. So what I really started doing was I um I actually became a bit psychotic how much boxing I would have watched. Um I would have watched probably I used to work on a barbershop 
And what I would have done was I would have watched boxing all day. At the barbershop that I worked in wasn't really that busy. But my old um, boss used to have the old, if you don't remember them, the, the old boxer tapes, the VHS ones. Yeah. And um, there would have been like four fights on them from like the <laughs> 20s, the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, right up. So I would have been able to watch all the greats. And there would have been a wee bit of a promo before and after and telling people what type of person this person was and after like, like as far as back as like even Jack Dempsey and Jack Johnson and stuff like that there so um, but I, what I what I noticed about a lot of them what I really started doing was after I started really watching the, the greatest fighters of all time like Sugar Ray Robinson Ali or Andre Ward um, Sugar Ray um, Robinson Floyd Mayweather Pernell Whitaker like Roy Jones, I started watching and really, really started studying. But one thing I noticed about them, they were all kind of doing the same thing. And then after that, I actually went and won my next 28 out of 30 fits by studying the grits. So what I what I call really started doing was when I first started coaching, I started trying to teach it. I was able to do a lot of things subconsciously um, when I was boxing myself. But when I started coaching, I found it that I was able to teach it in a way, but as times went on, um, I've been able to break it down a lot simpler. And if anybody asks me questions, then I can go in there deeply where the foot should be, where the hands should be, where the shoulder, where the head should be, all that, all them types of things. But at the start, it did stress me out a wee bit that I couldn't break it down as simply as I wanted to. And I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm perfect now in my way I teach, but I think I'm break, being able to break it down more and more um, when it comes to especially what's relevant and what's not relevant too. So when it comes to fighting and coaching, that is basically the main the main thing that I had to really adjust with is being able to break something down simply. Essentially, if I'm right, and what you're saying is that probably subconscious or unknown to yourself when you were seeing and watching all those old greats, you, those are, you were identifying those things almost unknown to yourself. You were able to spot them, which is the biggest thing, isn't it? Yes, 100%. Like there's the stuff that I was doing in boxing that I am only starting to come across even within the last few months and go, I, I, I can't believe I was able to do that without anybody actually even teaching me how to do it. Do you know what I mean? So, as I say, you were able to pick stuff up subconsciously, as I say, but I've really started picking up stuff that you really need to know consciously. And that's why I was able to go on a run of so many wins in the amateurs and then obviously in the pros too. Um, it's because I was really be able to pick up the most important stuff by studying the greatest fighters. But as a coach, as I say, um, one of before fed especially, and that's one, one thing that I've started learning more and more as well. And then last two weeks were a great experience for me. There's the now I know what I have to remain my fitters of right before they get in the ring. Like, for example, I told Potty just right before the fit, and if you go back and watch it, if you're able to land that jab there, body, then we're definitely going to get it early knockout because, and then he walked in and done it straight away, and I says, there it is, go for it, do it again. And then he went for it again, if you watch it back. And then, as I say, when he finished them, um, we had a tactic that if you have him hurt, I hear me shouting it as well when he did have him hurt. That he was able to finish him a lot more cleaner than yeah. just getting in and just emptying the tank with uh, loads and loads of punches. So, as I say, I'm learning more and more how to um, break things down. I'm learning more and more through experience and the personality of the fighter that what they remind them of before the fight that, that that's really important. And none of that, all right. One thing people probably won't know as well is I actually trained the kids in the amateur club I've only really started doing it this last maybe uh, month or so since the clubs have been able to open up again 
So I'm also learning through them and learning through the pros as well. And they're just learning different personalities because I do plan on being in this game for next, say, I don't know, maybe 45 years. Yeah. So I, I really want to really... Um, I, I look through a lot of stats and stuff when it comes to Olympic medals and national titles and stuff like that there. And I really do aim for like the top of the top, like bringing kids through and getting them Olympic gold medals and stuff like that there. And uh, I'd say I'm, uh, the most important part of it all is breaking things down simply. I've probably said that about 10 times already. No, but right. I remember a, a, a quote one time that Einstein says, he says, if you can't break something down simply, you don't know well enough yourself. So I, as I say, I'm always second guessing myself and always asking myself questions of what I'm doing right and stuff like that there. So I'm just always trying to perfect things over and over again. I speak to Wayne McCullough on a regular basis. I grill him about Eddie Futch and listen, I am fascinated and intrigued by those old guys who were able to do things in a time when they didn't have the science, they didn't have the video, yeah. but they were still able to get such phenomenal results. Like he had Joe Fraser, he had Marilyn Starling, he had Wayne, he had Riddick Bode, all man- manner of different styles. He got the best out of them all. Today we don't see too many coaches getting so many different variances. Mm-hmm. What stands out for me is in Lewis and in Potty, what you've got is two phenomenal hitters, two guys with ferocious power who can take fellas out, but you're almost teaching to pull back on that. But when it comes then, they're able to deliver that. Hundred percent. What people don't know as well, like see when I says earlier about the um when I was nineteen I lost seven out of nine fights. Well what what I used to fight as back then, I used to have a take guard and I used to go forward a lot and I would have lost by one point and like stuff like that there. So I I do know how to get a fighter to go forward, but it just didn't suit me, if that makes sense. But then I started boxing, I started watching Ali Mayweather, so you could imagine what type of fighter that I then became, like a counter puncher and stuff like that there so I do understand both parts of the yeah. um the game going forward and going back but the thing is um with Lewis and Potty but one thing I noticed when I boxed this is how I basically learned this if you take your time and if you do set up shots um then you can hit people so much more cleaner than just going in and trying to bulldoze them and trying to trying to knock them out you're better off just adding up the points and just like uh, what I call it scoring the shots and then getting away again do you know what I mean and that's that through Lewis's fight I'm sure you've seen that the, it really manifest that Lewis was a kind of go forward take our fair looking for the knockout because he does have a big punch but now that he's actually more relaxed now and he's uh, he's setting up shots and he, he really really knows the game he, he didn't know the game anyway but now that we've really um, drilled on the movement part of it you're starting to see a real difference in Lewis so um as you said there about Addy Futch, him having like different um, stages of fighters and whatnot and the science scenes. And, and at the end of the day, everybody's always learning, do you know what I mean? Yeah. But f- because I had a, a lot of experience in fighting both ways, it's, um, it's I wouldn't say it's by accident, it's actually through just experience. And, and possibly those fellas were drawn to you as well because they could see that and the style and they're able, the jury able to, they're aware, they're not just, but some boxers just want to get in and be told what to do whereas you've got some there now who are deep thinkers they know and, and mm-hmm. this performance the other night bodies was they were two totally different but it was almost this turning of a corner it's like this the, the most accomplished but the most disciplined it was all rolled into one and it's like all of a sudden people are thinking where's this come from one thing that people don't know about Lewis too is Lewis I would more or less say that Lewis has always been able to, to box like that it's just the thing is because Lewis has such a big punch power that, and it's understandable too, that he wants to knock it. 
so much because he it, it's, it's a great feeling knocking somebody out. So that's the one thing that Lewis always went for was the knockout. You know what I mean? But now that he's uh like going up in the rounds and and the guy Lewis Green who was fighting was a really come forward fighter. Um, so Lewis then just had to adapt, and I think that you may not see it depends on Lewis's Lewis's the, the style that the person Lewis is fighting next. But you could see Lewis come back to that style where he goes forward and with a take guard if it suits him. But at the same time, if he's to fight someone again that like maybe Lewis Green, he could box again, just yeah. whatever we decide um, is best for him. But um, when it comes to Potty and Lewis's performance, actually, believe it or not, um, when we watched that guy Potty was fighting, he is actually kind of like Lewis Green and the way he fights come forward. Um, not in, not entirely a uh, like a hit and knock it hit fighter like Floyd Mayweather or something. So they were gonna they he on all his opponents he went that his opponents nonstop. Lewis Green went out his opponents nonstop. So I, we pretty much um I pretty much prepare Lewis and Potty the same. The only difference was with uh, Lewis Green and uh, the guy who Potty was fighting was that he um was able to Potty hit the guy clean and knocked him out. Lewis had the Lewis guy, Lewis Green, Lewis Cracker hit Lewis Green clean, but it wasn't as clean as the shot potty hit him. Yeah. Um, so Lewis Green was able to get up, dust himself off, and then really go at Lewis again and and try to make it as hard as possible for Lewis for Lewis Cracker. But Lewis um stuck to his game plan. But if that guy was able to get up, dust himself off, and do that to potty, you probably actually would have seen a very similar performance, believe it or not. But as I say, potty hit him so clean that it, he wasn't able to dust himself off. And one thing that really impressed me about the two of them, I didn't know it until after the fight, that I don't think the both young fighters had ever been knocked down before. Yeah. And it was just amazing to see, that, and it gives me more confidence as a coach, that, that what we're doing is right. And here's where I'm going to jump in, have a look at the biggest headlines that made waves in the boxing world over the last week or so. But just before I do, want to just highlight something there. I wasn't for a second comparing D. Walsh to Eddie Futch or any of the other greats. Um, it would be disingenuous of me to do so for D. early in his coaching career or, of course, against any of the other greats. What I'm trying to point out is that uh, the really great coaches have that ability to spot the fighter's talent, nurture it, but improve around it as well where needs be. We haven't seen Rory or Owen or any of the other fellas fight recently, but but there can be little doubt this is a fella that he knows how to improve his fighters. Both the big UK promoters have announced a run of shows uh, with Eddie Hearn announcing last week four guaranteed guaranteed Saturday night shows in the UK. Between now and Christmas we're going to have September, October, November, December Saturday night shows. There's also a highly high possibility and, and most likely three extra pay-per-view shows on top of that which are likely to be October 31, November 17 and December 12 with December 12 we're guessing is most likely to be the Dillian White Povetkin rematch now that's me guessing Matchroom have also on top of that announced four US shows in the works which are I'll, I just as I'm recording today I saw a tweet that they're due to release information so it'll probably by next week's episode we'll have all the details so they're going to announce on top of that four US shows two Italian shows and one in New Zealand and no prizes for guessing who will top that one. And uh, expect to see Joseph Parker against his former sparring partner, Sir Fa. I can't really, I can't remember his first name. Fa is his surname. Uh, 
alongside that then at the same time uh, Queensbury Promotions Frank Warren of course have announced a three shows so they have two left to go they had a great the weekend just gone which was of course topped by our boy Deck and Anthony Yard and next one is two weeks time September 26 we have Josh Taylor against uh, Consong and incredible like that fight in itself is, is we'll come to that one in due course also on that card will be Charlie Edwards. We'll have Davy Oliver Joyce, who I will be speaking to before then, Willie Hutchinson, and a few others on that card. And then the last one of that series, uh, which I believe they're due to follow up soon too. But the last one in that series will be October ten. Liam Williams versus Andrew Robinson for the British title. Anto Kakachi will defend his super featherweight title against Leon Woodstock. We'll also have JJ Metcalf and a few others on that fight. Dennis McCann was meant to be on. I'm not sure has he stayed or moved. I believe his opponent has withdrawn. Queensbury also announced um, recently that they had to open a headquarters in Poland. Interesting news. Uh, a lot of the good, solid, shall we call them away fighters, come from the likes of Poland and those uh, Eastern Bloc countries. And some very, very talented fighters too who might not have always had the promotion opportunity. So it's a good move, interesting, and watch that space. So hopefully it will bring bare fruit for them in the long run. And last but not least, in terms of fixtures and announcements, MTK have their Golden Contracts finals coming up over the next two weeks, uh, which are going to be split out, I believe, in the... Of course, they have the light heavyweight and they'll have the lightweight finals. Sorry, they'll have the lightweight final and the featherweight finals, but they also have the light heavyweight semi-finals. And they'll probably be all run around the same dates. So bear with me as I try to muddle my way through this one. On September the 30th at York Hall, we will have O'Hara Davis versus the mighty Celt, Tyrone McKenna. That one will have a lot of ears from Ireland. Of course, that's the lightweight final. And in the same night, the featherweight final, Ryan Walsh against Jazza Dickens. Incredible finals. Now, let me say also, I'm just about done putting together a preview series of podcasts which speaks to Tyrone, Ryan Walsh, Jazza Dickens and a few little Brucey bonus specials as well. And you're going to love it. You're going to really love it. I spoke to Tyrone on Sunday evening. And um, to say he's so focused, to say he's relaxed, to say he's ready, doesn't even come close. But that's for a future date. Watch out, as I said, Enswell Boxing preview of the Golden Contract Finals. And uh, you're going to enjoy that one. In the semi-finals have also, uh, due to be listed, announced. I haven't heard the draw if it's been made yet. It's the light heavyweight Golden Contracts. Uh, both, one of them will be on the 26th of September in Riga, Latvia and one then on the 30th in York Hall. So, interesting to see how that one goes. I believe Jose Burton is in that one as well. Something else I've had to stop myself from conversing about lately, and talking about, and going on about, some will say, is the Katie Taylor pursuit fight. So, as much, that's behind as well. No questions or anything else about it. But one thing I did say, in the days and weeks that followed that, and of course the amazing fight with Terry Harper and Natasha Jonas, was how long will it be before we have a conversation about that rematch, where there was real controversy, where there was real legitimate complaint and a real question mark over the result, when there was none over any over the other one. Now that was that was my comment at the time, and we left it, we parked it, and we've heard in the last week or so, surprise, surprise, no talk of the rematch yet. We're going to have Terry Harper facing Catherine Fanders, who I believe now is a mandatory, and we're being told. Natasha Jonas is lined up to fight one of our previous guests here, Heather Hardy. How about that for a fight? How about that for a fight? Two, and again, a, an incredible lady. 
What a special talent and what a special person Heather Hardy is, if you if you remember. She joined us back in the middle of lockdown, where she was having good days and bad. We'll have a little bit of a link to that. I'll put the link for that in this episode notes. Have a listen if you get a chance. But there again, all the talk was about another possibility of a rubber match somewhere along the line. Because it was, again, supposedly close. Stop out, you're at it, you're doing it again, give it up. I'll follow it up by saying, are we going to see or hear any talk of an Eglinton versus Cheeseman rematch? Because I can tell you this much, that was controversial, genuinely. And I know I've spoke with, I've exchanged messages with um, Sam, and a big shout out to Sam Sam Eglinton, who, great, great fella, and and a guest, of course, for, I think it was episode two of Fight Size. Brilliant fella and, and just a, a refreshing attitude. So let's see if we hear anything there. Now listen, the news that got out during the week that got the juices going for all boxing fans. Incredible. We're going to get Loma versus Lopez. Finally, it's signed. Finally, it's sealed. And finally, set to deliver. October 17th. Okay. Top rank bubble. MGM Grand. I had to think about that. What was I going to follow that up with the bubble? Closer to the time we'll get into the weeds with it. But, as I said, in the in, it's an intriguing contest. It is the real deal, genuine article, TBE. In my opinion, by the time he's done, when the book is closed, he will be the one you refer to when you talk about incredible and the best. But, I'm not getting into it early, because that, that we could get an episode out of that on its own soon. Can Lopez do the impossible? You better believe he can. But will he? Will he be allowed is the other thing. Lawrence O'Coley is going to face Loaki, I believe, for the WBA title on an AJ card. I believe it's on the AJ undercard. That's to be announced soon too. And there's talk again. Will he, won't he, will they, won't they? Wilder Fury 3, the trilogy fight. Probably, in my opinion, one of the most pointless matches of any trilogy. It's 2-0, and oh, and as far as I'm concerned, the Fury, he's boxed the ears off him in different styles, in different ways. Even with standing so knockdowns and everything else I don't know I don't know listen there's going to be money in it I suppose but we'll we'll have to watch how things go as far as audiences and fans and everything else go but they are I believe planning for December 13 in the Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas so whether that happens or not who knows and with a lot of fights going on around the world over the next as I said week to 10 days going to go through a few of them of note and then we'll go straight back to the so coming up on the 25th of September in Paris Tony Yoka versus Johan Duapas in the heavyweight clash. Of course, in Mexico on the same day we have, would you believe it, Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. And I think he is facing Mario Canizares, I think, if I read my own writing properly. And I believe that is, yeah, that's who that is. So September 26th, it's Jermal Charlo versus Sergei Derevichenko. And Jermal takes on Jason Rosario. Two cracking fights. Two unbelievable fights. The first one I cannot wait to see. And again, we'll get into that one, of course. And the other highlight to pick off that is Danny Roman, of course, who is uh, hopefully at some point in time going to catch up with our boy TJ Dohoney again. And he faces um, Payano, which will be an interesting fight as well. But it'll be tasty to watch. And the only other one that I would say to keep note of is for the WBS final, the Super Final, uh, we see Dorticus versus Bredis. You're going to get an impressive, you're going to get a tasty little clash there in the Cruiserweight World Series of Boxing final. And that is final. Back over to the second part of our interview with D-Walsh. 
without being intrusive, safe to say you're now at a totally different place in your life that you were as a fighter, is that Oh, 100%. I did at one stage love fighting. I later loved boxing, but most of my life, my boxing career, I actually didn't. I didn't enjoy it as much. Like, seeing I see kids um, who I train right now who are like 14, 15, 16, and they love training and they love boxing. I actually and way I'm a wee bit jealous of them that I wasn't like that. I really wish I had it been. I really enjoyed now. Someone was saying to me, you'll be getting a lot of people knocking down your door now and trying to get in and coach with you. But I only really want to train people who have like a like a humble attitude and who are nice guys and people who I know. Like obviously I know uh, Lewis, Lewis is like a younger brother to me and I've known Potty my whole life. But as I say, um, I really enjoy being around the fighters that I have. But back when I boxed, I just, because of the weight making, and, and see when you even talk about Sands, Sands is like, come on, leaps and bounds, even this, from when I boxed. Even when it comes to nutrition, there comes to conditioning and stuff like that there. And I just really wish that it had been around. And I probably would have enjoyed boxing even more. I would have been able to keep my weight under control. From your own point of view and from your journey, was there a catalyst for it? Was it just life in general? Is this in terms of me quitting boxing or coming back into boxing? Or Are the two linked? What happened was... um. I really did lost the desire to become anything of a champion when I when I did become a Christian um, five years ago. Um, and I can't explain it. It was just a numbing feeling um, when I just didn't want to do it no more. I, did, I was coming to the end of my, my career. I didn't want to do it. And then, as I say, when I became a Christian, it was just like the final nail in the coffin. And when it comes to, to being a Christian, I don't believe in that, that boxing is against Christianity or whatever, blah, blah, blah. It's just that um, I was done with boxing by the time I, I finished it and then I actually went got a good maybe be, I'd say year and a half two years I probably wouldn't even have watched the boxing fit and then I started slowly but surely getting into the coaching side of things and then now I'm starting to see the the real good that boxing does for people it's done for me growing up from St. James in the Falls Road in Belfast which is you know the culture itself it's probably very similar to where you're from like when it comes to the, the drink when you're growing up and stuff. Now it's starting to really turn into drugs, gentlemen. And um, now that I'm a coach, um, I probably see the kids more than a lot of the kids even see their own families and stuff like that. I'm, I'm always with them and blah, blah, blah. And you can really start to see the, the difference in the effect that you have on the kids. Um, and I always try to make sure that um, my lifestyle clean is as clean as possible because you're always wanting to rub off on kids and you don't want them to go down that road where... And I've seen it millions of times in boxing where kids have been so talented, like multiple Irish champions, and then all of a sudden, bang, you hear that they've packed it in and they're up to no good and they're doing this and doing that. I know ones that are that are in jail right now, um, a couple that are dead as well, just from even drug overdoses and stuff, So, and and not, and not even matching suicide. So I think when you've got a real um, influence in your life, they can keep you at it and can speak to you what way. That's one thing I love about the, the fact that I did box. I went through the mill when it comes to all the emotions and the mental part of it and the psychology of, of fighting. So I'm able to tell them because I have also been through what they're feeling myself. And um, and it's just, like, even if, I'll, I'll not even name the fighter in particular, but when we started working together, he wasn't in a particularly good place. And from the first session that we did together, one-to-one um, boxing, he uh, we talked for probably about an hour before even we got to do the pods and just talking about life and what, what, what the way things were. And from that, as a person, he has been absolutely spot on. And um, But I think that a coach is 
a massive part of somebody's life. So I'm even enjoying that part of it too. I spoke with Jazza Dickens on Thursday and man, I swear, I, I had had a week up to that. It was like a little bit of everything. You're doing what you do, you know, you're doing your daily thing, but all the things in a connection of an, of a 40-minute phone call, I just walked away he, buzzing, literally buzzing. Mm. But he, like his story, uh, D, he was talking about uh, boxing became life for him because life really wasn't that good. So his boxing environment, his gym, everything, that just became life. And man, that's such a nice fella. It, it just goes to show you that how much it can improve and what you're saying there. The life skills. You can use boxing as an illustration for almost everything in life. And that's what I, I love about it. I don't mean the same corner or whatever, but life is a fit in itself. Yeah. And as you say, you walk away. I walk away most of the time from uh, the Boston Club and I'm buzzing myself. For example, the professional career that I have, I would have a lot of people in who um, are going out their novices in the, the professional Boston um, team that I have because they're real characters and they're able to keep everybody um, happy, able to keep everybody going. And um, they're fit guys and they're able to motivate my fighters as well. So as I say, boxing um, really does. Um, I walk away from most times, um, almost all the time, really buzzing. Boxing is, um, I would say it's one of the biggest things to teach someone discipline and teach them life skills. You can learn certain things about football where you know the tactics, the formations. I don't think there's anybody could ever claim in boxing, yeah, have, okay, I have this down. You can never ever have boxing completed no. as a coach because you're always having to update your data, basically. It's like an iPhone. Um, I have an iPhone 6 right now, but you're always trying to update to the 7, then you're updating to the 8, then the 9, then the 10. So, I mean, that's why you always have to keep your eye on the game at all times as a coach, especially. The comparison is brilliant with the iPhone as well. No matter how many iPhones you've had, how long you've used them, there's always somewhere along the line you find this little app or you find something and say, oh, I can yes. do this as well. And boxing is the same. Yes. It opens the exact same thing. Oh, look. And then you get lost in that <laughs> for a couple of weeks. <laughs> yes, but, 100%. And that's um, the way it goes. One of the things I did try, but I wanted to experience was coaching. I, I boxed a little bit of leagues in Kildare, not, not of any standard, but enough to know how it feels to taste your own blood, to get slapped in the face. I wanted to learn, I wanted to learn as much as I could. If I was being honest or if I was going to send a fella or a girl out there to fight, I really believed that you had to have done enough of it to know what you were talking about, to be able to send a person in there to experience it, to know it. Now, that's not to say that mm-hmm. everybody has to die. Not there are exceptions to every rule. I understand, uh, to a small point, how it must feel when you're sending fellas out there against guys who can do real damage. I know, for example, um, there is fighters out there who have actually told me that when they're, for example, they are the coaches telling them to do drills, whether it's at the high performance, whether it's at the Ulster um, high performance, whatever. They told me if that coach can't do the drill, then they don't even take them serious. Um, mm-hmm. Which is, in a way, I know what that means because you have to really trust your coach also. Do you know And especially if your coach is telling you something, like, for example, me, I would never tell somebody that I didn't know works 100%. Do you know what And the thing is too um I personally i think it's it's ways to be with a coach who has boxed yeah. not not even this certain like level or whatever and i'm not even talking about that there but just to be in there and know what a fighter is feeling just nervous um what to say to comfort them what to say to boost their confidence just a wee bit personally i think it, it is important that a fighter is with a coach who has at least done a bit of boxing. From your experience, really good amateur career, you came through and you went into the pros. What advice would you give? Well, number one, at the end of the pro game, don't turn pro unless you can sell 100 tickets a fit. 
Yes. That is fact. Like, you will not make any money. Like, for example, there was a guy I was talking to this morning there. He was talking to me about a, a one of fed. He was looking to spar the. He was looking for one of his fitters to spar one of mine. And he says to me, look, this kid's turning pro, blah, blah, blah. And um, I I just asked him um, what was happening when he was thinking about it, blah, blah, blah. And I said to him, look, if he sells such and such tickets, he will only end up with a certain amount of money. And he went to me, the coach this was. He, he, he went, what? That's that's not good. Like, you know what I mean? But that is what you have to do. Uh, is uh, Number one, sell 100 tickets a fit. So, I mean, that's that's number one. And and two, you have to have a humble attitude coming into the program because um, look at even, for example, Rabasi Ramirez, the two-time Olympic gold medalist. He walked in and lost his pro debut in America. Um, you have to have a humble attitude too because I, for example, didn't have a humble attitude coming into the, the program. And uh, I thought that um, journeymen and all were all just absolute bums. But one thing you'll notice is that the strong, hard men, mm-hmm. if they land one shot on your chin, um, on the, with the pro gloves are different from amateur gloves and tapiat the hand wraps are like you has your hands like past the pauses. You could get a serious wake up call when you start sparring these so called bums that you thought were, and you, you're all, you're all of a sudden you're going these aren't these people aren't folding they're not going away, and you have to have a serious humble attitude to come into the program uh, and that's number number two um, because at the end of the day they're hard man at the end of the day and they've, they've probably had sometimes 40, 50 fits. And I know, for example, in uh, the club I was in, um, they were kind of had that attitude where pro games, crap, that's this, that's that. So I adapted that attitude and I thought everything was going to be easy. But let me tell you something, it's really not. But the most important thing, if you're going to turn pro, is you have to sell at least 100 tickets. A lot of the time, it doesn't matter how good an amateur you are, unless, as I said, you're in that top 2%, say the likes of a Conlon or the likes of a... Mm. Oh, uh, yeah, 100%. Like, I even know um, amateurs who went to the Olympics um, in the last ones yeah. and didn't get offered anything to turn pro. Your pros right now, they're at a stage now where every step is going to be a step up and the stakes are going to get higher. It's going to bring the pressure for the fighter. Does the preparation for each fight, um, with the despite take away the um, pressure, take away the prize and take away everything that's on the line for it, does the preparation stay the same? Do the steps stay the same? It's a case of just putting in the plan in place and going step by step. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, hundred um, percent. I can say that for it depends on. It always depends on the type of fitter that my fitters fit. Um, what what I what I do is personally, I have a group session on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. It's just basically drills, hard work. Everybody's being basically hit with the same stick and fundamentals, basically. But the Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday is actually when I get down to the nitty gritty and the fine details of what I want from my fighter when they're fighting a certain fighter. So, as I say, um, when it comes to the nitty gritty, Lewis's fight with John Thien, um in the Ulster Hall on February 1st was completely, completely different from when he fought Lewis Green. So, as I say, it's I use days that everybody is hit with the fundamentals over and over and over again, and then the days in between is for the fighters coming up. It's always the fine details and what I want from them. Um, and and so far, it's only been early in my career, but it's worked absolutely perfectly. And also because of the fighters now who are stepping up into the fifty fifty fights, I've really, really, really enjoyed it and I come with for more because it's actually brought out the best in me as a coach it's brought out the best in them as a fighter 
I've been able to gain more experience from it, and they've also been able to gain more experience as well. Knowing themselves, um, knowing probably having more confidence in me, more trust in me. So more 50 fights for me, the better. Do you know what I mean? But it also has to be at the right time and the right place also. When you're putting together a plan, fights agreed, Lewis is fighting, Joe blogs. What, what would be the process for yourself? How long would you spend before you actually get the plan in place and then of actually out rolling it out with the fighter himself? I would get a call, Lewis is fighting XYZ on XYZ date. I would probably watch his opponent for about a week. Um, probably maybe three fights a day um, as much as possible. I look for patterns and what to do. And I would also um, go to the fighter within that week and say, I've seen this, I've seen that. Are you comfortable with doing X, Y, Z shots? And then we, I would basically agree with them what kind of six drills we do. And we do them for about eight weeks straight. So by the time they get into the ring, they know exactly what they have to do. X, Y, Z. I would really, really study deeply on what the fighters are doing and I always would um, focus on worst case scenario too and then I would also go over best case scenario but mostly worst case scenario so we cover all bases. Is there always a pattern in the opponents? Always see the reason why I was able to find a pattern um, I actually think that a lot of times that the fighters don't even know that they're doing a pattern and um, one thing the reason why I know that there's always a pattern in what somebody does um, is because I found the pattern in the greatest fighters ever. So I noticed that there's always a pattern in what someone does. The only person I can be can be totally honest in saying that I can't find a pattern in, well, I can see a bit of what they're doing, is Lomachenko. Mm. To be totally honest with you, you can understand why. Yeah. Um, but as I say... Um, Rigo as well, maybe. I see. I it's Rig Rigan though does very similar things. The Robinson Mayweather and um, Ali. You're I've noticed, and you're and Pernell Whitaker. You're sending me to school now. I'm gonna have to. Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and and Pernell Whitaker also. Um, what's what's the similarities between Ali, Pernell Whitaker, and Rigondo? They they would have very similar um, things in what they do and how they move and the way they move. Pernell Whitaker and Rigondo were two southpaws, Ali's orthodox, but you always notice that Ali goes to his left mostly and Rigondo and Pernell Whitaker go to the right. So, um, what was I about to say? So, as I said about the, the fighters, it did pan out in the fight where Lewis's fate ended up being worst case scenario because the guy come at him, come at him, come at him, dust himself off and come at him again. Um, but the party's one was best case scenario mm. and I love both I, I genuinely did love both fights um, but at the same time in the worst case scenario with Lewis Lewis probably learned more through the worst case scenario do you know what I mean? Yeah. The obvious question then is when you're prepping your fighters is it also a part of what you're doing then is to make sure that they're not trying to leave as many patterns as possible to try and cover those as much as possible Well see the patterns that I try to do is patterns that it's very hard to counter Yeah and there is about six that are almost impossible if you get them right. That is with the strength, with the speed, with the fitness, and with the actual pattern itself is probably, in my opinion, the most important thing in boxing is the pattern that you give. There's some fitters, uh, it was actually not that long ago, I'll actually not name both fitters, but a guy came to me 
and says, um, look, there's going to be a fight here soon. He was training the guy. He says, can you do me a favor? Can you study the guy who's going to be fighting, who actually used to be a world champion? So I, I, I did watch the guy, and but I never really studied him that much. Um, I went and studied him, and I come back to the guy, and I says, he's really good. He Seeing what he does, I was never really impressed with this guy, but then seeing I studied him, I went, that's the reason why he's, he's more champion, yeah. because he is so good. The patterns that he, he was doing, it's very, very, very hard to counter. And the, the losses that this guy's actually had have been very close. So um, I do notice that if there is a pattern, I know what patterns are hard to counter and what patterns, patterns that aren't. And a lot of those patterns as well, would it be fair to say, could be traced back to those fundamental days where they're learning their very basics and they're learning that. 100% is actually what I was just about to say there for example when Tony Bailey was fighting Usyk I explained to my brother when we were sitting watching it what Usyk was doing and it was almost perfect yeah. in his pattern but then my brother said to me well how's Tony Bailey meant to beat that and I says well he can't because Usyk's been doing this for 20 years and Bailey has to adapt on the net to beat Usyk that's something that he's been doing for 20 years during the Olympics, during World Championships, during the World Title Fights, then when Usyk basically cleaned up. So I says it's almost impossible, but at the same time, there's always that chance where he can land one on Usyk's chin. But that's all he's got, is a, is a slim chance. To talk up a fight with him and Chisora, no disrespect to Derek Chisora or anyone else, I think if, if Usyk keeps doing things at the pace he's doing them at his own pace, I I don't see anybody getting, no matter what the size difference is, you know, and time, mm-hmm. the course of time. Yeah, but to be honest with you, um, I also agree with you when it comes to Chisora and Usyk, um, but I think there's only one person, in my opinion, that will beat Usyk in the heavyweight division, and it's Tyson Fury. Yeah. Because the only thing is with Klitschko's um, game plan was perfect. It worked for so many years. But he came against someone who was actually bigger than him and almost did the same thing with better footwork moving. So that's where he, he really struggled. And also he had youth on his side too, Tyson Fury. And, um, but it, when it comes to Usyk, I can't see anybody but Tyson Fury beating him in the heavyweight division. Just because Tyson Fury is so big and what he does is absolutely brilliant. Fanless arenas, we all want to take positives from this in this game. Is that one of the biggest positives from it, is that you can do that now with a level of comfort and a level of certainty that you wouldn't be able to do when there's 20,000 people screaming behind you? Oh, Big Ten. Big Ten, like, for example. Um, you you actually... You heard me shouting when it came to Potty when he was, like, getting in for the, for the kill. I said, Potty, stick your arm out. And you can hear me saying this in the in, in the fed itself. And that was able to get make him get the distance where he was able to knock the guy out clean. Um, would that have happened if there was maybe 10,000 people there? Probably not, but I would be confident in Potty who would have done it anyway because it was something that, that we had been working on, do you know what I mean? But I really, really do have to say I, I love the no fans. But at the same time, once the fans are coming back into it, I'll start actually really loving the fans back again. That's it, and that's that. Thanks to Dee for taking time to chat with me. And I can assure you that as long as this interview was... There was nearly the same amount again that we chatted off air and it was just an insight that um, I learned an awful lot from. I hope you, the listener, enjoys it as much and get in touch. Let me know what your thoughts are. That's it for me and them until then and joining me on next week's episode from O'Rourke's gym in Inchicore, just turned over professional Christian Preston and also delighted, delighted to welcome 
not long after his world middleweight title fight with Bubu Andrade, Luke Keeler. So until then, stay safe, stay sane, and smile. All's well that ends well. <laughs>